0: We are diving into uh, this semester, I'll say again, uh, this study through um, what we call the order of salvation. Uh, These sort of, um, uh, uh, at least uh, we could say, logical steps uh, in uh, Christian salvation, what it is that God actually does in saving his people. Um, And again, what we've affirmed, at least to some degree, is that the idea that there's a list, a checkbox that God is doing As it goes through to save us, feels a little sort of um, a little uh, you know a little scholastic for some people, Uh, and so what we've said is is really if you take the whole thing, if you take it as a whole, it really is just a thing of rare beauty. It's like a gem that you take, and when you study it, cuts up the light in different ways, and in each moment sort of uh, breaks forth in sort of new uh, fire inside of our hearts. Well, last week we started. uh, this discussion with the, 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 the piece of the order of salvation, which is itself the least, um, how can I say this, the least steppish if you can say that. In other words, of all the things that sort of encompass the whole, or if there was a way to sort of describe um, Christian salvation in its most essential way, you got it right here in this doctrine called union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ. That phrase you'll find comes up over and over again as Christian teachers study it. But the phrase that you are probably the most familiar with is what you constantly read when you're reading the Apostle Paul. You can hardly get a sentence through the Apostle Paul's discussion of almost anything before he is talking to us About what it means to be in Christ. He says that in Him, all of these benefits that come to God's people through redemption are there. In Christ, in Him, in the beloved, He is constantly referring to us as being in Christ. And I remember reading this as a child and being completely baffled by what He could mean. I thought, well, I assumed that I was in my own skin, I'm in my house, I'm in a church. What do you mean that we're in Christ? Well, we tried to say last week that it's a fairly mysterious uh, concept, Um, but that we tried to introduce it by saying simply this, narrative fuels lifestyle. We're going to talk a little bit more about this this morning. But what we tried to say is, is union with Christ is, in some respects, God's beginning to tell your story in view of another's story. That is, I begin to get an entirely new life history, a new way of thinking about myself, a new way of talking about myself, and hopefully a new way of living out my life with a borrowed identity, someone else's identity that I've borrowed. That is, this is distinctly Christian and quite frankly very weird uh, uh, to the, eyes of, to the uh, ears of most people um, and so we started talking about what union with Christ uh, was last week uh, and, and just sort of trying to define it in that way. And then we spent a little bit of time sort of going through the scriptures on where do we get this topic? Uh, where do, from where does it emerge? Uh, and so what I want to do today is sort of dive into the next two questions. And that is, first of all, what problems does it solve? Now that we've tried to define union with Christ as this sort of adoption of a brand new narrative, uh, uh, of, of sort of being joined in union and sort of communion with Christ in a fundamental way. What does union with Christ do to us and for us? I'm taking this outline, like I said last week, uh, from a wonderful book that if you ever get interested in this topic, you would do very well to read, uh, which is called, conveniently enough, Union with Christ uh, by Rankin Wilburn, who is a, at present a pastor uh, in, uh, uh, at Pacific Crossroads out in Los Angeles. Uh, and a good friend of mine, we actually were counselors at Alpine Camp together a long time ago, uh, and he's an old Miss grad, so he can't be all bad. You mean from California? <clears throat> yes, by all means. So what I want to look at this morning is sort of what problems does this solve? And then I also want to look at this question about well, what does it mean to abide in Christ? When he says in John uh, 15, you know, abide in me and I in you and you will produce much fruit. Huh. Well, then I want to know what we mean when we talk about abiding in Christ. That's weird language. Let's dive into that. So first of all, we want to talk about what problems does the the idea of union with Christ solve. And I think I can wrap it up and say, essentially speaking, um, it helps us deal with identity questions. There's not that many more powerful ideas to talk about than the question of identity. Now, not every culture... Um, around the world talks about, I think that when I say, you know, we're talking about the struggle for identity, you have at least a vague sense of what I mean when I say that. But for a lot of cultures around the, the world, they don't really wrestle with it in these terms, mostly because the idea of identity has already been solved in their mind, or rather it might say this, it's so obvious to them. For instance... If you grew up in sort of a fundamentally Asian culture, the question of your identity was always unquestionably attached, speaking huge broad generalizations here, don't get offended, those of you from Asian backgrounds, but is broadly attached to your family of origin. Anyone here, I think, from an Asian background would say, your family of origin has a huge impact on a fundamental understanding of what it means to be me and living up to family honor, sort of living in a family tradition. In other words, everyone is wrestling with this idea. But the first society, really, to attempt to define itself on purely individualistic terms. In other words, I got to be me. <laughs> um, you know, you know, the truth lies within is us. Like We're the first ones to really give this the old college try. It's not going very well. Um, But the point is this. It's a quintessentially American struggle to long to know who I am and where I belong and what my purpose is. In other words, baked into all of our experiences is this quintessential question of who am I? What defines me? Now, I think that there's actually a biblical case to be made Uh, for the reason why the struggle is there is because that longing is imprinted on your spiritual DNA. I think you're made to long for that. I think the fundamental question that is faced between Adam and Eve and the serpent when they are initially uh, tempted is a question of identity. You have drawn your idea of yourself and the world around you from God. But what you don't know is that God is trying to keep you out of the God club, Eve. And so therefore, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be on the outs. You don't get, the, you don't get to partake. In other words, the, 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 the vision of yourself, the idea of yourself, that he has always defined of you vertically is not enough. Rather, look around you. And what does it say in the verse? It says that she looked and she saw that the fruit was, was, was pleasant to the eye and desirable to make one wise. Um, yeah, it's a direct parallel to, to the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's where John gets that, by the way. It's from Genesis 3. Small, small little exegetical nugget coming out there. Uh, look, if, for those of you who were tortured uh, during the, 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 the frozen years, <laughs> the frozen years, that, that's, that's, that's poetic, isn't it? Um, Uh, Rankin brings out this great illustration because he had children that were sort of coming up. I came up through the the Cars era, uh, uh, which actually was a fairly decent era in Pixar history. (laughs) It'd be great to sort of mark people's history by, so what was your Pixar era? Well, I'm much older. I'm a a Little Mermaid person. Oh, wow. Um, You don't look that old. Um, But our culture over and over again has tried to define themselves by what they are on the inside. But what's interesting is a few perceptive people have noticed that that attempt to define yourself from the inside is just another way into another prison. And so no one sort of pulls this out better for us than sweet Elsa, right? Um, The great irony of that sort of chart-topping song, Let It Go, is that Elsa is singing about her choice to exercise her power to be free, you know? Finally, you know, I'm ready to let all go. I'm ready to sort of be done with all of this. But while she's exercising her choice to be completely free finally to who she really is, she's locking herself into an ice prison of her own making. Isn't that ironic? In a quintessentially American description of what's going on, she sings I'm free at the very moment while she's ensuring that she won't be. This is where I think this perceptive idea, look, whether it's from Frozen or even back to Pinocchio, what mankind often wrestles with is this sensation that if I can really finally achieve true autonomy, if I can be alone, if I can get rid of all external things, then finally I'll be who I'm supposed to be. And the truth is, all it does is imprison you in the labyrinth of your own constantly shifting desires. (laughs) The tragedy is, is this quote has a bad word in it. I won't use the bad word, but it loses its emphasis when you do. But there was a movie that uh, came out years ago um, uh, called High Fidelity. High Fidelity sort of stars John Cusack. It's kind of like the next iteration of John Cusack's teen angst movies, where you've got a guy who really is just a grown-up teen. Um, And as a grown-up teen, it it sort of talks about this. uh, It's actually based off of Nick Hornby. Uh, novel, who's hilarious but profane. Um, but um, where, where this guy owns a record shop and has zero sense about how to deal with women. I mean, none whatsoever. The guy is so immature, it's beyond description. And he basically, the whole movie is him kind of trying to deal with all of his past breakups and sort of come to grips on them all. Um, and there's this incredible scene where it's, it's one of those movies where, you know, um, uh, 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 John Cusack is always breaking, Was it, the third wall or fourth wall? Which wall is it where you talk to the camera? The fourth wall, thank you. Where he always breaks that fourth wall and looks at the camera and says stuff, and at one point he's like, you know what, all of my life I've been telling myself just to follow your gut. Don't listen to anybody else, follow your gut. And in the TBS edited version he says, after all these years I've suddenly realized that my gut has junk for brains. <laughs> Well, that was much funnier in, in the way that I imagined <laughs> that coming out. Um, but it didn't. It lost its impact. That's the reason why. <clears throat> What's he saying? I've been following my gut for years. Now I realize that my gut is not on my side. My, my autonomy, my desire to be on my own is leading me in places that are destructive for me. Rankin quotes a, a, a piece from a W.H. Auden poem that says, Each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom. Each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom. Um, I don't know where you find yourself on this scale, but if you are anywhere below the age of 40, the idea of being free from all external constraints, to be free to be who you are, is the most unquestioned assumption of cultural influence expressive individualism is the reigning sort of philosophy of the day. You are not allowed to sort of rob me of my identity. And I'll tell you what, you won't know just how much that generation is committed to that idea until you begin to even vaguely suggest that it might be limited in some way. Actually, no, God really does have a design for sexuality, and therefore, whatever sexuality happens to be occurring to you at this moment is not on its face legitimate. Say that in any public square. We're in a relatively safe space to say that right now. I'm a little self-conscious to say it on recording. Because there's a day, very far, not very far at all, when this could be plastered as, as hate speech. And, and, and people get fired for things like that. All over the place. Expressive individuals, how dare you? Try to tell me that your reality is to be my reality. I'm the only one who can say who I am. In any realm, whether it's sexually, whether it's politically, whether it's whatever. And so, what are we left with? We're well left with what Nietzsche foresaw years ahead of time, which is just the will to power. Whoever's the strongest man wins. Whoever gets the most votes. I ain't even going. Don't don't do it. Don't do it. Resist the temptation. So what problems does this solve? It begins to speak to us about our fundamental identity. And there's a wonderful... And so therefore, the struggle for identity begins to set our course as a Christian for real fundamental change. There's a lot of ways in which you can define the Christian life, but it is perfectly valid to say that one of the reasons why Christianity is what it is and it is moving and it is, it is, it is uh, pressing forward into human history is for the transformation of sinful people into beacons of righteousness. That's not unfair. Why am I here? You are here to get right. And having begun right, begin to set the world to rights around you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's, an, that's essentially there. And I would make, make an argument that there is no more fundamental discussion like union with Christ that helps us wrestle with this. And so therefore we turn to one of our favorite little passages, which is Romans 6, 11. I knew enough when I was growing up, especially in high school and sort of reading through the book of Romans, that by the time Paul gets to the end of chapter 3, he feels like he's at a, a fever pitch because he's saying now though, in the face of all the problems with sin, whether you pursue sin in an irreligious track or whether you pursue your sin through a religious track, Romans 2 will unnerve you if you read it for what it is because it means that we can actually run away from God in all kinds of different ways. You can run away from God through your irreligion, which is the most typical way of thinking about it, but you can run away from God with your religion as well. Finally, it says, but a righteousness from God has been revealed from heaven against all... You know, there's now been a real righteousness that comes down from God. <clears throat> and it comes from us when, in, in Jesus as he, sort of, uh, um, as he comes as the ultimate sacrifice to transfer his righteousness onto us. Chapter 4 in Romans, you find that all of a sudden he says it's all acquired by faith. And you know what? It's always been this way. Abraham lived by faith, and because he lived by faith, God, I want you to lean on this word for a second, counted it to him as righteousness through faith. Amazing. And then in chapter 5, he starts talking about what an amazing thing we have. It's unbelievable. True, real assurance of salvation like you could never have in the Old Testament system is now available to us through faith. Romans 5 is awesome. But Then in Romans 6, <clears throat> he starts to deal with Objections. And the first objection he raises is what? Now, some of you are going to be out there saying, huh. Okay, so let me get this straight. So Jesus loves to forgive. I love to sin. This is awesome, <laughs> right? So I should just do what I do best or often so I give him more opportunities to do his thing, right? That's that the way this works? You know, shall we say then, you know, uh, shall I sin more that grace may abound? That's the translation of that. Okay, the loose the message translation of that uh, particular thing. But he goes on to say, absolutely not. (laughs) Why would you even think that way? Because don't you realize that when you became a Christian, like you were joined to Jesus. (laughs) Like everything about his personal history, his death and his resurrection, is now your death and resurrection. You died then. And when he rose again, you rose again into newness of life. His personal history is your personal history. Now, you should be thinking, this sounds like last week's lesson. Yes. Paul in Romans 6 is giving us his unpacking of union with Christ. And then all of a sudden he gets to Romans six eleven where he sums it all up because it says this. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look, that verb, consider is a very important verb in the book of Romans, as, you, as we've known from, from Kurt's study. <clears throat> when Paul finally opens the floodgates of good news and he says that Abraham was counted as righteous, that's the same verb, right? Abraham was counted as righteous by faith. That's the same verb that he says when he says that you are to count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a, this is a big deal. because What it means then is whether you feel it or not. God is counting you as righteous. As he goes through and counts the righteous and the unrighteous, when he gets to you as a Christian, he counts you in the righteous column. That has nothing to do with your feelings. It really is outside of yourself. It is, as Luther said, an alien righteousness. It's outside of me. And that's a relief for a lot of you who wrestle with this whole idea of like, I just don't feel it. I know all of you people are all super excited about this, but it's not hitting me. It's a great relief to find that out. But here's the next question. If in Christ you died and and a new you rose from the dead, the question then becomes that if that's how God counts you, then how do you count you? This is the question. This is a huge question. The number one problem that, it's, that, that, that union with Christ solves. How do you count you? What is the narrative that you have about you? And, and, and I'm helped a whole lot. There's a wonderful sermon uh, from, from this uh, very verse by my good friend Brian Habig, who's the pastor of downtown Presbyterian Church in, in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, you would do well to listen to Habig uh, uh, on a regular basis preach. But Habig in the sermon says this. He says, are you a forgiven you that you've always been? Or are you a forgiven new you that is counted as righteous in God's sight? Because if deep down you think that you are a forgiven old you, then you're always going to flounder in your faith. Think about this for a second. Are you a new you or are you still the old you? Because when all of a sudden there's this announcement that God has forgiven you and you're still the old you, that announcement of forgiveness, you know what it is? It's just getting put back on probation. Okay, now, uh, up until this time, God's been patient with you. But look, it's about the billionth time, correct? And so after this, we better get it right. And suddenly we go out and you're like, oh, you're right. Mm, okay, we've got to try harder, try harder, try harder. I've got to really work hard at this. I just got to give us some effort. And what happens? We're back at failure again, just hoping and crossing our fingers. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is something going on inside of you at every moment of struggle that is always referencing, psychologically, a sense of your identity. Habig uses the, the, the illustration, he uses a couple of illustrations, of wrestling with habitual use of pornography, sort of but without question pandemic uh, uh, in our society. When, you, when, when you're wrestling over that moment, and there's a, the statistics showed that this is a universal struggle, so we're among good company here. When I'm wrestling in that moment of, of, of being drawn in by something that I know is illicit and I know is something that's, that's forbidden for me, are you an old you or are you a new you wrestling with that? Because if I'm just the old me, I'm standing at a fork in the road, and that little voice on the inside says, look, I know you believe in Jesus and all, blah, 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 blah. But this is who you are. This is who you are. You've always been this person. You've always had this struggle. It's been there from the very beginning, and you always will be this person. This is what you've always done. Maybe you'll make it long stretches from here and there, but this is who you are. The problem is most of us aren't used to listening to that voice. And because we don't listen to that voice and identify it, we don't find an easy path, or the, the Bible's path, it's not easy, the Bible's path into some measure of victory over this. That is completely debilitating to have that voice in there that is constantly cursing us. And this is true with the, the true with the person with whom we are either nurturing or having an affair. It's true for uh, the worrier on the inside. Habakkuk talks about the fact of him being a worrier. He says, he says there are times on the inside where I just stew and when that feeling kind of starts coming up in me as being worried that everything around me is all fragile and I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop everything's great right now fine 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 but you know it's probably gonna be bad soon he said that worry comes up and I'm so familiar with it there's that voice that rises up and says this is how you've always been so Paul says in Romans six eleven. therefore count yourself at that moment the narrative about who you are is critical you know, the gospel comes along and doesn't say, "Look, I know you've always been this porn loving person, but you know maybe one day, someday, God will forgive you enough to get you to heaven." That's not it. What he's saying is, is whether you lo- feel it or not, that porn loving person was killed, and you're a new you. Have I learned to flawlessly apply this? Apply this? Of course not. But how do I apply that to every single area of my life? Uh, that, that it's got to begin. That struggle for that change. Have to begin with the question of identity. Am I the new me or am I the old me? Learning to live out of who I really am and what God has told me to be. That's the game changer. But it doesn't work backwards. It doesn't work backwards. We begin with identity that moves into practice and, almost, and almost, very rarely does our practice move into identity. So there we are. All right the new you versus the old you of what problems it solves. <clears throat> uh, Rankin's got this great uh, 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 illustration about a little boy who walks into his daddy's closet and uh, uh, pulls one of daddy's shirts off the, off the rack and puts it on and walks around in the shirt and the shirt goes all the way to the, all the, way to the floor. You know, Daddy's shirt doesn't quite fit at this point. But well, what's going to happen though? Over the years, he's going to grow up into that until it finally fits him. And Rankin says that's a great description of the awkwardness early on of being clothed in Christ. And you're like, ah, does this fit? (laughs) I don't think this looks right at all. But the idea of growing up in to that maturity in Christ to where all of a sudden those clothes with every passing year start to fit is the identity struggle. Okay, so that brings me to the next question and one that we we will finish with here. And that is, how do you abide? All right, Les, I get it. So therefore, the goal then, what Jesus says in John chapter 15 is, look, I am the vine. You are the branch, okay? But if you'll just stay connected into the vine as a branch off that vine, you'll have everything you need to produce good fruit. I'm going to bring this out to you. I'm going to be the thing that you're vitally connected to on the inside. Uh, Rankin has this great illustration about... um, about seaworthy vessels, and what he says is, is there's, there's a multiple different kinds of, uh, uh, I'm going to use a phrase here called labor to be brought near, but we need a picture of a sailboat here. There's three kinds of uh, seaworthy vessels, are there not? The first kind of uh, seaworthy vessel is a, is a motorboat. <clears throat> you know, the motorboat sort of works uh, where you're completely in control of the power and direction of that boat, Okay. And Rankin says, union with Christ is not quite like that. This is not something that I am directing, that I am sort of manipulating, and I'm pulling the strings of. But neither, he says, is it sort of like a raft. You know, a raft is kind of out there and completely at the whim of the wind and the waves, just sort of tosses about. But he says, abiding in Christ is a little bit more like sailing. Think about sailing. Sailing moves only because there's a wind to move into those sails. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to do. There are ways in which we can sort of draw the sail to catch the wind, as it were, and have it sort of take us off. So the phrase that Rankin uses is, and he's, I think he's borrowing it from, I think, Andrew Murray maybe, is labor to be brought near. Jesus is saying, look, the fundamental exercise of your change is, to become a different person than the one you don't like now is to get close, to draw near to God. What does it say in James 4? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That That is the beginning struggle is how do I draw near? I just need to get close to him. It's, look, it, 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 it sort of has an analogy to that same feeling that you've had when you've been away from your children for too long. I, I travel for a living, so I'm, I'm Especially aware of this feeling. But when, especially when they were small and they were like, glad to see you when you walked in the door, now another one is like, oh, hey, you know. Um, <clears throat> I'm just kidding. Our children are incredibly happy to see me. I've got one in the room. Um, Ginger, for some reason, found it, and I, I, I don't know, maybe this was self conscious, maybe it won, but she was always like, hey, call me when you're on your way home. So I would leave campus, you know, and start driving back. Hey, I'm on my way home. Okay, great. And I realized it's because she was kind of getting the kids together to be like, Daddy's on this way. Which, you know, it takes them about five or six years to realize, big deal. he came home yesterday too. But for whatever reason, there's a span of time where they're just like, Daddy's coming home, you know. And they'll sit around at the back door, and as you walk in, there's some little squealingly happy voices. That's just awesome. But have you ever felt that parents, that literal physical need to just be like, ah, just to scoop your kids up? and to have them close, to draw them near, to literally feel the physical feeling of them. That instinct is not just for parents. Teenagers, you're actually going through the same thing, but you're getting the early flashes of it in in, in the teenage mating ritual, which we will not talk about uh, at this particular day. This is my only point. You know sort of psychologically what it feels like to long for connection, and the Bible is saying, that's where your change begins as well. And when Jesus says, come and abide in me, this is what he's talking about. What is he talking about? Well, at least a couple of things. How do I abide? Well, you start by staring at beautiful sunsets like that. There was no, there was no graphic on Google for abiding. <clears throat> Tim Keller says that there's a lost art of meditation. Uh, he came and spoke to us last week in Denver when we were um, at staff training And in his opening, in in his uh, devotion that he did for us that morning, uh, a week ago Wednesday, he was talking about the lost art of meditation. And the way he put it was this, he said, you know, the the goal is for a Christian to sit down in your Bible reading whenever you do it, and to read until you find a verse that is radioactive, and park on that verse. And of course, everybody in the room kind of went, radioactive, what does that mean? And he said, there'll be a verse somewhere in there that you can stop on that sort of just kind of, it triggers something. It it, it forms an idea. It it, it sort of puts you back to a memory. Maybe maybe it sends you off in an application. But when the verse goes radioactive, he says, part there and and start to pray about that. Let that be the thing that you're praying about because that ensures at least that it's coming from the text. One of the reasons oftentimes why meditation becomes sort of a drag is because it's not based on the Bible, and you're meditating on stuff that's wrong, and you're nurturing an idea that's wrong, and it's not sort of defined by what Scripture has. Meditation is a big deal. Prayer. Keller goes on to talk about it. he has got a wonderful book on prayer, where his chapter on drawing near is fantastic. Uh, best little pamphlet I've ever re- re- uh, read on prayer uh, is by Michael Reeves. Literally, you can read it in one setting. It'll take you 15 minutes to read it. It's a small little pamphlet called Enjoying Your Prayer Life. But Reeves actually helped me identify something that was, um, that was really profound for me. Um, because he said, so oftentimes, the reason why we fail in prayer and why prayer feels like a drudgery and why it feels so sort of distant to us is because our focus is always on prayer as an activity of prayer. Okay? In other words, we tend to sort of look at it as like, well, this is the thing to do. Like, I'm a Christian. I mean, it is morning. Well, come on, let's pray. Let's all pray. And it feels like I'm focused more on praying. He says the real battle in prayer is to remember the one to whom you are speaking, to make it about him, and therefore it doesn't have to be boring. And here's what Reeve says. He says, reminding yourself who you are coming before, who you're coming before, is a great help against distraction, and it changes the prayer. This is what happens in the Psalms. They constantly interrupt their own petitions to speak of the Lord's faithfulness and kindness. So should we. And persistently focusing again on Him, then elicits more earnest and hearty prayer. That's wonderful. Prayer is the sort of vehicle by which we are wanting to see something beautiful in God. In the same way in which I used to walk in my door and your children's come around you, there's a moment of ecstasy as a parent where your child is glad to see you. It's so much fun thinking about Gray and Eden and all of you who have had little babies. Like in just a few months, that little baby's face is going to light up when you walk in the room, and it's a drug. <laughs> it's a drug, and God pumps that drug into our systems when they're small so that when they're teenagers, we won't get rid of them. <laughs> right? Right? that's right that's right um um, there's a lot of writing in the in the puritans the puritans were these great reformed folk from the back who talk about something called the beatific vision you ever heard this phrase i've it's made it in a couple of my lessons in the past if you've been paying attention but the beatific vision was this term that used to describe like this this direct sight that every now and then, it's not a regular experience for Christians, but every now and then, you felt like you kind of tapped in. And suddenly, you were just overwhelmed. I don't know why this popped into my head. Uh, I used to love to watch the Far Side or read the Far Side cartoons, you know. I had all the books and everything. Gary Larson's sort of incredibly popular little small cartoon box. And I remember one where there were these two mosquitoes sitting on someone's, <laughs> someone's skin And one of the mosquitoes has his nose inside the skin, and he's blown up huge. And his friend next to him is saying like, Bob, Bob, pull out, you hit a vein. Um, It was mildly amusing. That that was fresh. I don't know where that one came. Um, I don't know if this illustration is even going to work. There's times in which Christians have looked and said, I almost hit a vein. I started praying, I tapped in, and all of a sudden... There was this overwhelming sense. There was this overwhelming sense, and it was tangible. Like, I almost cried. Maybe I did cry. Because suddenly that love and that affection that that, that has all been theoretical and was just sort of discussed about at Sunday school and at church, suddenly it just hit. And I got swept away. This is what the redeemed will have in heaven fully by sight and what believers have now on earth partially by faith and not yet with our literal eyes. Keller says this in his book on prayer. While Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas made this the very centerpiece of his thought, very few Protestant theologians have touched it at all. Yet John Owen, this is the old Puritan, is, quote, doggedly insistent that meditating upon the beatific vision is a vital practice for all Christians to cultivate because our Christian life And thinking should be oriented toward the hope of the beatific vision and shaped by the foretaste we receive of it here and now. Oh, did you hear what he said? (laughs) He said, the goal of our prayer should be to get that. In the same way that the goal of my getting into my car, leaving a hotel room so I can finally be home, the goal is to get to those children. I want to be near them. I want to draw them close the goal of my prayer is for him to draw near. And for those of you that have been praying for a long time, a whole lot longer than I, you'll know that it's not always that way. But there's a hope and a longing for those moments. And would to God that they would be plentiful when he would draw near in those ways in which we would... Spurgeon said this one time. I should have written this quote down. He said, there have been times for some of us when we have been praying where we have literally had to ask God to turn away the delight Because we were so overwhelmed with joy, we thought we would die if He didn't turn it aside. Now, does that seem sentimental or smarmy to you? You may not understand sort of where this God is coming from. He wants to be with you. And there are times where that being with Him carries just as much ecstasy as it does with your children. Dare I say, the ecstasy of the marriage bed? The longing to be deeply and powerfully connected to somebody if you're a a single person. The longing for my marriage to be right if you're unhappy in your marriage. The longing to sort of be working and to feel the futility of it and to wish you could be proud of what you did. What is that? It's all wanting to get in, to be connected, to be in union with him. Thirdly, worship. Look, regardless of all the ocean of motives that we bring into this weekly activity, this is the point. The point of our gathering together is to be with him. There are times in which, and look, you're like, not every Sunday morning is going to do that for me. I know. But how many times have you found yourself having to sing your way into (laughs) where you're supposed to be for worship? That's a great usefulness of these songs. I'm going to get up and try to be like, at least get myself in my mind. I'm going to meet with him. I'm ready to be with him today. How does that happen? And then finally, Rankin mentioned something that I think is profound, and that is staying in community, living in community. One of the weird things we rarely recognize is this this sense of of God's nearness to us is not always an intangible sort of like, "Um," your eyes roll back in your head, I feel it, I feel it. That's not what it is. It's actually quite tangible in the body of Christ. Why does he call it that? Why does he call this The body of Christ. You can look at this in a number of different ways. When I was in RUF, I used to love to ask students how weird it was when Jesus says at the very end of his life before he ascends on the cloud, he says, look, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then what does he do? He leaves. (laughs) You're going, what? You said you're going to be with us, you just left. What? Right? But of course, what does he say? I'm going to send the Spirit. The Spirit's going to do something. Yes, the Spirit will himself bear with your spirit that you're a child of God. Yes, but you know what else? You're going to have each other to be the hand of Christ in each other's life. The most tangible hug that you are feeling that you need from your God is likely to come from the person that you see on Sunday morning. I can remember times of just being in a a bath of discouragement in my office on campus and sitting there praying, being like, God, is there anything that you can do in the midst of my prayer? Knock on the door. And be like, whoa, what? I can't even have my own time. What, right? And they're all gonna be like, Hey, I was just walking across campus. What are you doing? Never once realizing that that may be God at the door. This will, look, things will change about the way you think about this when you think in those terms. Like we are not just here to give each other a hearty pat on the back. Paul commands us to greet one another with a holy kiss. We're not gonna be kissing each other this morning, but to find some way. To know that there's someone in the world that's glad to see me, um, yeah, the world would come to church for that. But the point is this: all of these things, whether it be meditation, prayer, worship, staying in, and getting in community, they're not means to. Th- th- these are means to an end. They're not end in themselves, because throughout it all, we've got to remember where home base is. Home base is always union with Christ. So that Rankin says this. Union is the secret to communion. And he says this, because only when you're absolutely sure and certain that you are loved by God, that you are safe in Christ, will you want to pursue the one who already loves you best. For example, when you don't read or pray, God is not like a disappointed school teacher scolding you for failing to complete your assignment. Ever felt that way? Rather, God is your patient and loving Father. He desires communion with His child so much that John Owen says, listen to this, nothing grieves God more than our hard thoughts about Him. This was Owen's phrase. Our hard thoughts about God. That is, our unwillingness to believe that God really is tender and kind towards us. Why does nothing grieve God more? Listen to this. Because He knows, quote, how unwilling is a child to come into the presence of an angry father. What's the point of the story of the prodigal son if it's not that? (laughs) That there's a loving father that that waits there. Dennis Johnson says, the salvation is, in its most basic sense, a participation in the son's relationship to the father through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Union with Christ. One sentence. How about that?